Welcome to this edition of the London Business School Tell Talk. Today we're delighted to have Louis van Ern, the co-founder of Duolingo, who joins us uh, for a fireside chat with me, Jeff Skinner, uh, at the Institute of Entrepreneurship and Private Capital at London Business School. Uh, this is a, uh, a dream that we've had for a long time of, of inviting Lewis along. Uh, Duolingo was actually the winner of one of our innovation awards two years ago, just at the time of COVID. And we've been nagging him to come along to the school uh, since then. And so it's a tremendous uh, privilege first of all, to have him here finally, and secondly, for me to have the opportunity to to talk to him and extract some of the essence of his entrepreneurial journey, which is basically what Tell is all about. It's understanding the entrepreneurial journey of some hugely accomplished entrepreneurs. Now, Lewis is, uh, as I speak to him, you'll, you'll, you'll see that he wasn't a Let's say a born entrepreneur. His his entire mission has been to create products that do social good, and uh, the, the 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 vehicle of the the venture and Duolingo is just the the last of a number uh, is the vehicle by which he can do this, by which he can bring together capital, bring together people, and and basically fulfil the mission. And and that I hope is what you'll take as you listen and 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 realise that there are so many lessons there for any entrepreneur. Uh, starting out that that basically financial success and uh, and and is the reward for solving a problem in an enormously imaginative and purpose driven way this is a recording based on a fireside chat that we had with lewis in autumn 2022 so listen up and enjoy welcome to this uh, wonderful tell series event uh, with Lewis. What we really realise at, at LBS, there are so many people who want to start their own businesses um, and can learn oodles from the experiences of a, a generation beforehand, at least in entrepreneurial um, years. Uh, and and you know, the, the wonderful thing about bringing in and, and inviting those who have clearly, demonstrably achieved um, in some cases, as in this case, more than once, is that they can be brutally honest about all the mistakes they made. Um, and, and it's still fine because despite all those mistakes, it was OK in the end. So we, we tend to find we get more honesty this way. So it, it's about the journey and the individual. And you know, when we prepared for this, Lewis, uh, we, we said, when shall we start? Where shall we start? You know, here, this high, this high, or this high. And, and you said, let's start in the, 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 the childhood, the, the upbringing, the, because there's stuff that happened there that really was formative and really did shape decisions later on. I was born. Well, you were born. We get yes. that much. <laughs> and then, <laughs> if you'd like to help me out here. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having me. Oh, and, uh, you know, well, it's, I've it's, said it's, we wanted you for three years, so this is a culmination. <laughs> it was hard to come for a couple of those yeah, years. Yeah, okay? absolutely. Um, uh, so thank you for having me. Okay, so let's see. Um, uh, uh, you know, just when I started, so a, a couple of things about where I grew up. So I, I, I was born and raised in Guatemala City, uh, Guatemala. Um, I, uh, I, I am an only child of a single mother. So it was just the two of us. Um, when I was eight years old, I asked my mother for a Nintendo. 
and instead of a Nintendo, she got me a Commodore 64. Um, and I had no idea what to do with it, and I was very upset with my mother for about six months. Um, but I eventually learned how to use it uh, by brute force, basically. And this is how I got good with computers. Um, at some point around age 11 or so, I had a pretty active, um, I'm going to use this word, but I, I'm also outside of Guatemala, so it's OK. But um, uh, active piracy business, I would say, of games. Uh, I wasn't really making money, but I was basically I had figured out how to uh, do away with copy protection of the games. And so I had, I had a lot of games that I traded with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and there were adults coming to my house and ringing the doorbell. And uh, at some point, my mother said, no, no more strange adults coming and ringing the doorbell, so I had to stop my first business. But, but there was the taste for that. I mean, there was, there was but a bit but I wasn't making money. Adrenaline. I, was just, I just wanted... Well, you were making money. Well, that, that actually <laughs> happened later on as well. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's, how, I, that's how I grew up. Um, it's important, you know, a couple of things will we'll come back. But, I mean, I think that probably one of the biggest things is um, I, my mother was a physician. In Guatemala, physicians don't make as much money as in the United States. Um, uh, and but she she spent all her resources on giving me an education. So I got the education of a rich person, even though we were not particularly wealthy. We we're not super poor either. We we're just kind of middle class. But I got the education of a rich person, um, and so I saw what that could do. And that you know later in life when I started Duolingo, they had that had a lot to do with with that. Um, but that's that's how I grew up. Okay. And then we skip on a few years, uh, which is... Uh, <laughs> nobody remembers those. Nobody remembers those. Okay, so I mean, you, you head off to Duke University, uh, where you uh, work very hard and play less than others, apparently. Uh, in other words, you, you worked and came out with a distinction in maths. And then straight off to Carnegie Mellon um, to do a PhD. Now, I only mention this because that sounds fairly... I'm not going to say pedestrian. I mean, what I mean is you're on the academic treadmill. At that stage, I think you wanted to... You had the professor in mind, didn't you, the academic route? Ever since I was a teenager, I wanted to become a professor. OK. Uh, that's what I did. And I, I ended up becoming a professor. It turned out I didn't love being a professor, but uh, that's what I wanted well, to do. Well, be careful what you wish for. Most, yes. people spend, <laughs> most people spend the first half of their lives making the second half miserable, so I'm glad you've got a hobby as well. Um, so you, you went for the PhD. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, was there anything... Un, you know, I, I did a PhD, and, and I know surrounded by nerds, it, it, it's fine um, and, and fun, but I just wonder whether even at that stage you felt you were wired differently to anybody else, or did you just know? You just went in and fell into it, into Nerdville, and, and off you went. Um, yeah, I was a pretty big nerd. Yeah. yeah, okay. That's, that's about what it was. That's yeah. about so what I it wanted was. to get a PhD yeah. Yeah, to become a professor. Um, okay, so n nothing there. Um, <laughs> but, but then fairly on, uh, Capture came along. Yeah. So tell us about the Capture story because, you know, you presumably did it out of interest. Um, and as we found out, you didn't make too much out of it, but we'll come to that later. So how did Capture happen? Yeah, so I was in my first year of the PhD program at Carnegie Mellon in computer science. Um, and I... It was actually my first month of the PhD program. I went to a talk that was given by the guy who was the chief scientist of Yahoo at the time. Now, this is the year 2000. Yahoo was like Google today. It was like the biggest internet company around. And this guy was the chief scientist. So I was pretty excited. It was a, it was a talk. It was a room kind of like this. And his talk was about 10 problems they didn't know how to solve. And I was a very enterprising PhD student. And I was like, OK, I'm going to try to figure something out here. Um, uh, for nine of the problems, I couldn't even understand what the hell the problem was. 
Uh, so I had no chance of solving those problems. But then for one of them, I'm like, oh, maybe I, you know, I'll just really think about that. The problem was Yahoo was giving free email accounts to, well, everyone. And um, they, had, they had a problem that people were writing computer programs to obtain millions of email accounts. And the people who were writing those programs were spammers. So if you're a spammer who wants to send spam from Yahoo accounts, um, you, uh, what they did is they only allowed you to send 500 messages per day for every account. But if you're a spammer and you want to send millions of messages per day, you, um, uh, you, what you do is you, you just obtain millions of accounts. And from each one of them, you send 500 messages. So they didn't know how to stop that. And what I did is I went uh, and thought about it a lot. I talked to my PhD advisor, who I just I have just gotten a PhD advisor, and we started talking about it. And then we came up with this idea that well, the first um, insight was, hey, um, the the real problem here is that computers have a lot of patience and can get millions of email accounts. A human would never be able to get a million accounts themselves. A human would get bored after a hundred accounts or whatever. So, could we distinguish between a human or a computer? Could we make it so that we only give email accounts to humans and not to computer programs? That was the first insight. We didn't know how to do that. Then uh, we came up with this idea that it turned out that um, humans could read distorted text, but computers could not. So this is, where, uh, this is where this idea of a CAPTCHA came up, which is these distorted characters that you have to type all over the internet. They've, they've changed. Nowadays, CAPTCHAs are these, um, you, you know, you have to click on like the, the traffic light or the bicycle or whatever. And the idea is, it's a test that can tell whether you're a human or a computer. And that um, we came up with that idea. Then we called up the guy, the, the chief scientist of Yahoo, and we told him, hey, we have this idea. And in fact, I coded up the first, the first version of it, which just made it really distorted characters. Um, and immediately, he, he thought, oh, I think that'll work. And within two weeks, that was in the, in the registration page at Yahoo for email accounts, and it actually stopped the problem. And so we were- So this we, is hugely valuable to Yahoo. It was hugely valuable to them. And pretty soon after that, a lot of companies started kind of copying that and doing the same thing. We made zero cents from this. This is not, we never made money from this. No, zero cents, C-E-N-T-S. You, you gave it to them. Uh, yes, we yeah. made no money from, from this. Um, we were just very, me and my PhD advisor were just very happy that it was being used. Oh, isn't that sweet? Lovely. It never so, even occurred to us to charge. It never even. And it, now, that guy, it never occurred to him to pay us. I'm, I'm sure it yeah, occurred I know, to him. Yeah, well, there we are. There we go. <laughs> but it never occurred to us to charge. And then after a while, yeah, we're like, eh, yeah, maybe we should have yeah, charged yeah, for that. Maybe anyway. Uh, okay. But we didn't. Um, so. so that was that. And I guess it had been the only product. Uh, you ever made, you might be kicking yourself now. But <laughs> but in the scheme of things, I guess it's just learning, it's just toughening up, it's just one of the things you didn't and wouldn't do next time. And then, um, and anyway, you did get, get to kind of keep the brand, kind of keep the kudos, and I guess you got a couple of papers out of it. I, I got a few uh, research papers out oh, of it. That was good, go, I got some publications, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, but you're not sore. No, 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 no. Okay, so in any event, springboard to recapture. Um, and and th this obviously whetted the appetite that set you down a particular route. Still not um, intended to be commercial. It was just solving a different, worthwhile, impactful, um, semi-social, semi, you know, a, a problem. 
So yeah. where, where, where did you kind of go with that? Because so, this, this then leads on to, you know, the real commercial stuff. Yeah, so what happened there, this is, this is um, a few years have passed since I had helped invent CAPTCHA, and it was being used by every website out okay, there. Okay, so there was years passed. Years had passed. Okay. Maybe five, six oh, years had passed. I thought it was going to take um, a couple of weeks. No. Yeah, I was getting my PhD, and, I, you know, I was taking yeah, classes okay. and doing uh, several years had passed. Um, and in that time, a couple of things would happen. Uh, you know, whenever I would go to a party or meet somebody and, you know, they would ask me what I did, uh, you know, I would say I'm a PhD student, then, then usually it would stop there as soon as you tell people you're a PhD student, that's kind of where it stops. Some people would be like, well, okay, when what? I and mean, you'd say computer science, okay. And then some people would eventually, it, it would come out that, uh, you know, I, I helped invent CAPTCHAs and people would be like, I hate you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because they're very annoying. And so, um, so that, ha- that was one thing that was going on, basically. A lot of people that were very upset at me. Uh, and then on the other side, I, at some point it just occurred to me to do a calculation, a kind of back-of-the-envelope calculation of how many times a day somebody was typing one of these things. Um, and uh, the number I came up with, which happened to be actually pretty close to reality, because later I did find out rough reality, I came up with 200 million times a day somebody was typing uh, a, a CAPTCHA or solving a CAPTCHA. Um, and at first I was very proud. I, mm-hmm. I thought, look at the, the impact that my work has had. Um, <laughs> Then I started feeling bad because I remembered that everybody was, you know, very annoyed by it. And then I started thinking, uh, wait, each time somebody does one of these, it takes it, the, the average amount of time was about 10 seconds that it was taking. So it's, okay, 10 seconds times 200 million. Uh, that's about 500,000 hours every day that are being essentially wasted by people typing these things. And then I started feeling really bad about it. And then I said, okay, that, that was like, a, you know, that's a major impact on, on, on mm-hmm. human productivity. Um, Satan rubbing his hands. Yeah, so, <laughs> I, I, so, so I started thinking, okay, okay, can we do something good with that time? And, and the, the reason I started thinking that is because those 10 seconds while you're typing a capture, your brain is doing something that is amazing, is doing something that computers could not yet do. So could we get you to do something useful that's actually valuable? And eventually I came up with the idea that you could, uh, and it was to help digitize books. So uh, I'll explain how that works. Um, so first of all, this is the year 2005, 2005, 2006. Um, there were a lot of projects that were trying to digitize all of the world's books. So um, Google was trying to take all, you know, all the books in libraries and put them in, online. But not just Google, the Internet Archive was doing that. All these, all these different places were trying to do that. Um, and the way the process worked is you took a digital photograph of every page of the book. Um, the next step is, so that gave you pictures with words in them. The next step in the process is that um, the computer needed to decipher what the words actually were. The problem is that for older books where the ink had faded, the pages had turned yellow, the computer could not recognize those, those, those words for the exact same reason that the computer could not recognize the distorted characters for CAPTCHA. And it just it dawned on me, oh my god, what we could do is we could take all of the words that the computer could not recognize in the book digitization process and then send them to people while they're typing CAPTCHAs on the internet. And so the stuff that you typed could actually be used to help digitize books. It occurred to me that that could happen, and and, uh, and that was a light bulb. That that was a light. That that right there was a light bulb. It just one time. I was actually driving uh, uh, from Washington D.C. back to Pittsburgh, where Carnegie Mellon is, and it just occurred to me. Um, there were a lot of details to work out, but it turned out this idea actually works. Uh, so what I did is I um, I started building it myself. Uh, like I coded it myself. At that time, by the way, I had just gotten my professorship. So I, I, had, I was an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University in computer science. And I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. But it, it was not, it was, I thought I'm, I was going to do it as, as a research project. 
So I started doing it. Then I recruited a couple of undergrad students that were working with me. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, let's all make this system. And so we made a system that what it did, we didn't have books, by the way, to scan. So we just had some old scans of books that we found online. Um, and then we built a system that would you know, run optical character recognition to try to figure out the words, figure out the ones that it didn't know what it was. Um, uh, and then it would put them in a captcha and, and send them to, well, we didn't have websites to send it to. We just made a service. And any website could come and, and use our captcha. And we just put it online, and it was a free, websites could come in and get it for free, et cetera. At first, it, you know, not many websites were using it, but we started seeing, you know, some websites started using us. The first website that used us that was slightly big, which no longer exists, uh, was, a, was a website called onlinebootycall.com. Um, <laughs> Very catchy. <laughs> uh, onlinebootycall.com. Uh, they used it for the registration form, and we were super happy that they were getting about 1,000 registrations a day. Um, so we're like, okay, good. We're serving about a thousand captures a day, and then other websites started kind of using us, and more and more. At some point, we were very lucky. We somebody called us, and this again, this is the year 2006. Somebody called us, and he um, said, uh, "I'm the CTO of, um, you know, a startup. It's growing quite a bit. We need a captcha. Um, can, can you know? Can I talk on the phone with you guys?" And we talked to them, and this was the CTO of Facebook. And they were just getting started, and they like, they're like, oh, we need a captcha. And you guys seem to have a really good captcha. You're like the inventor of it. This is great. And so pretty soon, they put it on the registration form. And we went from serving, I don't know, 5,000 captures a day to serving like, I don't know, 400,000 a day or something from there. And then after Facebook started using it, Twitter started using it. And it was just kind of everybody started using our own captcha. And so we were serving a lot of captchas. And giving it all away to an Yeah, yeah. And it was all free. But we were not digitizing anything because we didn't have any books to digitize. We were just recycling the same words over and over again. Uh -huh. And so that was that. And then I, I went to give a talk. I, again, pure academic. I'm like, OK, I'm going to give a talk about this. I went to give a talk about this uh, somewhere. It was like Dallas or something. Um, and there in the audience was a guy who was the CTO of the New York Times. And he came at the end and he said, OK, so you, you're saying you can digitize a lot of stuff, but you're not digitizing anything. Uh, <laughs> we have all the archives of the New York Times, 130 years of old editions of the New York Times, where we've scanned them. We have all the, you know, all, all the images. And we simply cannot decipher the, like Computers cannot decipher those, because in particular newspapers, you know, it's pretty hard to do that. Can you help us? And I said, oh, that's amazing. You can, we, can, we can actually, we have the power to help you, you, you do have that. A, you sniff another Yahoo moment coming up. Well, here, but hold you? on. So, so, th <laughs> so, so this is where this guy was much nicer. Um, this guy said to me, I'm like, yes, I think we can help you. I'm pretty sure we can help you. And he said, all right, how much? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh OK. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I said, let me get back to you. I went home. I figured out how much it would cost them. So the other option that they were actually considering doing is having humans type the whole thing. And I figured out how much it would cost them to do that. And I divided that by two. Yeah. And then I said, I'll do it for this much, which turned out to be $42,000 per year of content that they had. Um, and I said, well, let's just do that. And it, within, I, I don't know, within like a minute, he's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Which told me I probably should have asked yeah, for more. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, we set this whole thing up. And then we realized that it, we actually could do, um, it was me and a few undergrads again, we actually could do a year of their content in a few days. 
So, and we did it. We did a year of their content in a few days. They sent us a check for $42,000. I mean, the mistake here might have been that you actually sent it to them after a few days. Yeah, the, well, you, maybe you should have waited a month or two and <laughs> made them feel that it was taking I mean, it, it was pretty fast. So they were like, oh, okay, you did it. Here's another year of content. And then they sent us another $42,000. So I was getting these checks for $42,000. And were you paying the undergraduates anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. some. But, but it, was like a, <laughs> it was like a weird thing that I was just getting these checks for $42,000. And then pretty soon, my department head... Um, found out that this was going on. And he's like, what are you doing? This is work for hire. This university is a nonprofit. We're going to lose our nonprofit status. What are you doing? And so this is when I, you know, I guess I was forced to start a company uh, doing this so that the money could go into that company. And so we started a company with me and those undergraduates. And you used that money to... Yeah, that money was used for the company. So there was no, no venture yeah. capital or anything. And that turned into a company. We hired about 15 people in the end. Um, and we were, you know, well along digitizing the New York Times uh, when then Google came and actually just bought okay, that Okay, so let's take a pause there because that, that's, that's nice place to take a pause. Two things. First of all, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, observations on the whole tenure system. I mean, it was you doing Ooh. this fantastically impactful thing and kind of getting punished for it. Um, I don't think I was being punished, punished for it. it but, just, but you they certainly didn't... weren't getting the, 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 the round of applause that, that you, you might have expected to get. And, you know... It, I mean, you, you were unintentionally unusual in this, but presumably there was a stack of stuff going on in the university, and the incentives just weren't there for your academic peers to do very much with this at all. I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say about the tenure system. I, I am not a big believer in it. Um, well, but, you've just uh, said something about it. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, but, but I think that's just, you know, that's just for me. I, I, that's when I realised that, you know, that's around then is when I started realising that being a professor was not really for me. I, I cared a lot more about, uh, well, impact in terms of, um, well, the real world. Um, and so I, uh, that, that's when I started thinking about that. And, yeah. Okay. So that's the first. And then the second is, um, you, you, you're now taking this money. Oh, drat. I've got to form a company. Oh, I need some people in this company. We have to pay them. I mean, yeah, th this is, seems to me the right way round. I want to do this thing. I need this vehicle. I need people. Oh, goody, there's some money here I can recycle into this. And all of a sudden, somebody calls you an entrepreneur and a, and a founder and, and says this is a startup or spin out or something. And you're, what me? Yeah, it, it, it kind of happened the right way around. I don't know if it's the right way around. I think it's probably the wrong way around, but that is kind of how it happened. Um, yeah. I learned the most important thing if you, if you want to start a company, the first thing you need is a lawyer. Um, <laughs> no, I had no I've idea how to start times. it. I'm like, what does even times. start a company mean? Yeah. Uh, I guess it means you have to draft some papers and, well, in the U.S., make it a Delaware company for some reason. Um, uh, you, you need all of that. So that's step number one, get a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what you did. But there's something else happened as well, you, you, as well here. You grew it into 50 people, you said. 15. One 15, five. One five. One five. Okay. Yes, I mean, that's, that's getting to the point where you have to start to be a manager. Um, you, you have to start actually going to the dark side of getting less doing it yourself and motivating and values and all that sort of stuff. And, and did that come easily? Because that's something you had to scale big time later. No. Um, you know what did come easily? Being a micromanager. 
Oh, <laughs> I was very good at that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was an excellent micromanager. I basically told exactly what, everyone exactly what to do. I, don't, I can't, look, this is a company that lasted for about two years. We did not care too much about career growth or progression or anything like that. We now do a Duolingo, by the way. If you want to work for Duolingo, you should work there. But <laughs> we care about career growth there. Yeah. In, this, in this company, I don't, you know, I, I had no idea what, what, what any of that was. So I was just, you know, we, we were just working. Yeah, um, yeah it, it worked oh. out pretty well. So then Google came along. Was that? I mean, that was not serendipity. Presumably, they were they were watching. And they, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, the, the good news is it was a pretty high-profile thing because you know we were digitizing the New York Times. The New York Times wrote an article about it, about how it was being digitized. So it was a pretty high-profile thing. And then they came, and um, they said, "Look, we're you know we're digitizing all, all the world's books. You can help with that. Um, can you know? Can we buy you?" Um, and and they did. Um, they did. I'll tell you another part that was, um, at that same time, Facebook, who was using reCAPTCHA, um, you know, I guess they found out that you know, we were about to sell to Google because Google was doing some due diligence on us. And they went and asked Facebook you know, how they were. And Facebook was like, wait, what? You're sure you're selling? And then at that time, they really were starting to compete with each other. So Facebook was like, no, how about we buy you? Um, and they made us an offer. And it was an offer of all stock. And we didn't take it because we thought it was not worth it. And at that time, the, the valuation of Facebook was about $4 billion. And we thought, that's never going to go up. Um, <laughs> but it might go. I mean, <laughs> we, we just didn't know. It yeah. turned out, I mean, if, if you know yeah, how much well, Facebook whatever. is worth today, yeah. this was a, an extremely yeah. dumb business decision on, on, on well, my Well, except, end, of course, I mean, you know, being the, the in corporate finance a little bit, you could have taken the money that Google gave you and buy the Facebook stock. You could, yeah, but I then I, but, yeah, yeah, but I didn't believe in it. Um, so, but yeah, so instead we took the, the cash offer okay. from Google. Um, All right. Yeah, which was kind of life changing. Um, it was life changing. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. great, and um, it also brought you basically uh, more time, I suppose, but also to the foothills of Duolingo, um, uh, which we're going to get into next. But just, I mean, what was what was the length of time between the the Google thing and the and the, and the foothills and, and actually deciding let's go for Duolingo? I mean, is a similar um, length of about time? two years. It went okay, from so shrinking a bit. It was about two years from from selling to Google to starting Duolingo. Although it was about a year, I was still at Google. So when when they bought us, yeah. they said, um, "Look, you you got to come with the company for me. I have to come with the company." I negotiated that I only had to go half time and I could stay half time as a professor. Right. Uh, so that's what I did. But about a year into it, I started thinking that I should probably start something like Duolingo. All right. So <clears throat> here you're beginning to sniff around for what next. Mm -hmm. um, and we really haven't spoken about the technology yet. I mean, what all this was based on. But you know, what, what is it that you felt that you were leveraging? I mean, what, what was it there that, that kind of excited you and, and you saw the future of in terms of technologies that, that you thought, well, it, you know, it, it has to somehow um, exploit or use th th this. What, what were the technology underpinnings that you were trying to find the killer application for? For, for Duolingo? Well, at that time, yeah, that you so thought was going to be big, that you thought, well, you know, there, there's, a, there's a tailwind here. Um, for Duolingo, the, 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 the real insight was, which, you know, is, I'm not the only person who had this insight. A lot of people were having a similar insight at the time. Um, I, you know, for me, I had just sold reCAPTCHA. I had basically solved my financial problems for the rest of my life. That was, that was you know, I, I was good with that. And then I thought, um, uh, I want to do something related to education. Again, because I am a nerd, I am like, okay, let's do something related to education. So I wanted to do something related to education. 
Um, and the, the first insight was, look, what's amazing about uh, computers is that for the first time now everybody's connected, we could actually deliver education to literally billions of people cheaply. Um, this, this is much harder. Before, you had to build schools. It was hard to deliver education. Now, we could deliver education and hopefully eventually personalize it and do so cheaply because we can access and you know, reach them through the internet. So that was kind of the insight. Again, many people had this insight. But, but I thought, OK, uh, that's kind of what I want to work on. Um, and we started wondering. So, uh, and I had this PhD student. I, that, that I had that, that had that had started as my PhD student even around the recapture years, but he was working on something else. Uh, Severin, who's my co-founder for Duolingo, is is a Swiss guy. Uh, his last name he was a PhD student in computer science. His last name was Hacker Severin Hacker, and the only reason I took him was because of his name. Uh, it turned out he was awesome too, but I mainly his name was awesome. So I'm like, well, this guy I got to take him. If all else is equal, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this guy's great. Um, so I had this PhD student, and we both. You know, we were looking for a, for a project for him, for his thesis, and then we thought, okay, let's start, let's do something uh, together with education. And again, this wasn't supposed to be a company, really. It's not clear that it was going to be a company. We just knew it was going to be a project, maybe, and for his thesis. Um, and we wanted to teach. That's, that's one thing. We weren't sure what we wanted to teach. And we thought, okay, well, maybe we should teach math. We both like math. Um, uh, then we thought maybe we should teach computer science. We both kind of know a lot about computer science. Um, eventually, we settled on, you know what, let's teach languages. And the reason for that was, there's a number of them, but one of them was um, uh, teaching English. In particular, um, you know, it can change people's lives. And so we thought, you know, most countries in the world, knowledge of English can increase your income potential. So we thought, okay, that. The other thing that we really liked about languages was we thought about it and we we're like, look, which this is one of this one in retrospect is one of the best decisions we made, um, but at the time it didn't feel like that big of a decision. But we thought, look, the problem with teaching something like math or we teach or we teaching like physics or computer science is those things get learned in school, and there's a couple of things with them, a couple of problems with that. First, in many countries, school systems are actually pretty good, uh, and secondly, having to align yourself to school systems and they're different in every country. That's going to be a mess. Languages have this beautiful thing that, yes, they get taught in schools, but a lot of people learn languages outside of school. So we thought, OK, let's get started with a thing that, um, that we can reach people outside of school so that we don't have to bother with schools. Um, that was the idea. So, so we chose that we were going to teach languages. And we also chose that we were going to teach languages for free. That was another big yeah. thing. Um, and the reason <clears throat> for the free was because uh, I, I, in my case, this is, this is where my, my upbringing uh, came, up, came about. Um, I grew up in a poor country. I saw the difference between those who have a lot of money and can buy themselves the best education in the world and therefore continue having a lot of money, where, and those who don't have a lot of money. And you know, those people barely learn how to read and write, especially if they're in poor countries. So I thought, OK, let's give language education for free. And we'll figure out later how to make money. Um, I was hoping we would figure out how to make money. We ended up figuring it out. But at first, we, you know, we had some wonky ideas about how to do it. But we really didn't know you, how you we were going to make it. You did have the capital to put into it. So you had that. You had yes, that although I did not use my own money. Uh, I was, um, which so, again, in retrospect, a horrendous idea. Because I probably, well, I don't know if it's a horrendous. Monetarily, a horrend had I just used my own money, uh, you know, that would have been much better. But instead, we raised, we raised venture capital. Um, uh, and part of it was actually really good. We, get this, we got this um, advice, which I think ended up being really good advice. If you use your own money, you don't have anybody to answer to. 
and you get lazy. Uh, whereas if you have a uh, venture capitalist, you at least have somebody to answer to. And I think that was probably true. Right. So, so we'll come back to the VC because it's rather intriguing that you're offering something for free <clears throat> and, and you want to continue and they still gave you the money. But we'll come to that yeah. in a second. Yes. Um, the, the, there was also this, this story about you using the competitor. I don't know whether that's a sort of Voldemort moment and you don't mention it, but um, you use it. And, and it wasn't fun. Either. I wasn't the competitor. It was our own stuff. It was your own stuff. Yes. Ah, I see. Your so, own first edition was horrible. <laughs> Yes, our own, so what we did is we're like, we decided we we're going to um, make a thing to teach languages. Yeah. Great. Um, I am a native Spanish speaker, so I said, I'll make the first Spanish course so that Severin, who doesn't know Spanish, will learn Spanish. And he is a native German speaker. Now, see, this is the thing. I was confused. He said he was a native German speaker. That is not true. He's a native Swiss German speaker, and that is apparently a different language. I, I did not realize that back then, but anyways, he said he knew German. Um, so he made the first German course, and I made the first Spanish course. And um, the idea is that I was going to learn German, and he was going to learn Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so we started, you know, kind of, um, you know, we, we made a thing, and um, we were uh, trying to use it. And every day we would come into work, um, you know, like at 9 a.m. or something, and, I, and you know, I'd ask him, did, did you do your, your German lesson or your, your Spanish lesson? He'd be like, oh, man, no, that's so boring. Um, and I'd say, yeah, me neither. German is really boring, okay? Uh, and so neither of us wanted to use our own system. And this is when we thought, okay, we're in trouble because um, we're highly motivated to make this work. And we cannot even get ourselves to learn on our own platform. That really sucks. Uh, and this is when we realized something that I still believe today, that learning uh, something by yourself, the hardest thing about learning something by yourself is to stay motivated. And so this is when we started making our own, you know, making Duolingo be as fun as possible. And, and was, this is the also the, the, the insight that fun correlated with engagement across the board. The more that, fun that. you made it, <clears throat> a bit like Sesame Street, fatigue-free learning, and that was the, the, the key insight. Yes, that it came. And differentiated from anybody else. Recently. Yeah, it came from the fact that we couldn't use our own product because we were too lazy. That's great stuff. And coming back to this free thing, which is fantastic, laudable, and, and you know, is, is the impact side again, which is, I say, why we started off with, with childhood. Um, but you still managed to raise money. We did. Going in to a meeting that says, we're giving our stuff away for free. We have no idea how we're going to make money out of it. And they still gave you three million bucks. Yes, and then first... they gave you five million later. Yes, so our first round, um, by the way, this has changed. If you are all raising funds these days, a Series A round is like 50 million bucks now. Back then, a Series A, this is 2010, 2011. Back then, a Series A round was $3 million. So we got our Series A round for $3 million. The reason, by the way, I've talked, I, I am now friends with the VCs, they, you know, the VCs that did this. You know, they, they, I've known them for 10 years. I'm, they've said much later, the reason they gave us this, they're like, look, we thought you were going to fail at that. But you seem like a pretty clever guy who had also who had already sold the company to to Google, so ah, eh, you'd figure something out. But we they actually thought that, that I was going to give up on language learning, and do something else. This is what they thought. Uh, they were wrong, um, but but yeah. So that's they, they basically. Gave and me and for them, more. it was you, you don't realize this at an early stage, but you thought three million is a reasonable amount of money. But oh, for oh, them, it's just for them, it was peanuts. Yeah, three million. I mean, they had a fund that was like a billion dollars for yeah. them. They were just giving us three, yeah, three million just, bucks. So it was kind of small money. Yeah. Um, but that's why they gave us that. Um, the second round, same thing. Um, we had already. So the first round, we hadn't launched our product. It was a pre pre launch. They gave us three million dollars. The second one we had just launched, but it was not clear if it was going to grow or not. 
they gave us um, $15 million. And um, uh, after that, the all rounds after that did, um, we, we at least had a lot of users. We weren't making money, but we at least had a lot of yeah, users. Traction. So people right. thought, well, you figure <clears throat> something out. Right. And uh, so a hell of a bet. And, and, and you then, the whole company started growing. You were CEO, and it grew into what sort of size? I mean, learning management still on the job. Did you get over the micromanagement bit? <laughs> um, we had about 30 employees, and I was still micromanaging the hell out of everyone. Um, and that's when, that's when my capacity to micromanage ended. I mean, I just could not micromanage more than 30 people. I've learned I can ma micromanage about 30 people. More than that, <clears throat> it doesn't, then, then, then somebody came and there was somebody I didn't really know what they were doing minute by minute. And then I was like, okay, that's, that's a problem. Um, and this is when we, we decided to hire our first manager, who was a, a woman who took a big chance on us. She's still, she's now our head of all engineering. Well, I guess she's been the head of all engineering ever since we hired her, um, but it was a much smaller company. She was a director of engineering at Google. Uh, I had known, him for, known her for a while from my Google days. Um, we hired her, and when she came in, you know, she was like, whoa, uh, you don't, you, you mean you don't have like titles here? Uh, no, we don't have titles. You, do you do any performance evaluation? No, we don't do. And she, she pretty quickly realized this was a, we, we use the term goat rodeo. It was a goat rodeo. It was like everybody just kind of moving around, being massively micromanaged by me. And she, you know, the first few things she told me is, you go can't be in all of everybody's business at once. You can't do that. So go figure out what your job is, but it's not their job. Um, and yeah, she, I learned how to be a manager from this woman. Her name is Natalie. She's still our head of all engineering. Uh, she took a big chance with us. Um, time goes on, and time does go on, actually, but time goes on. And you're into either second, third, fourth round, and monetization finally entered the agenda over dinner with another investor who... Did they give you 475 million? Or no, did the, they value no the valuation was 400. That so, was around. I mean, that's, a, that's a lovely story. Why don't you just? Tell yeah, it? there was. So we had at that time. I mean, time passed. Um, Duolingo had had a lot of traction. We we had we had a lot of users. Mm -hmm. We reached the point, which was an amazing point, which was there were more people learning languages on Duolingo in the U.S. than there were people learning languages across all U.S. high schools combined. So we, were, we felt very good about that, but we were making zero money. We were a strictly a money. We called ourselves a nonprofit, but we weren't really a nonprofit. We just had no profit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you had a stonking great loss, actually. We I mean, were not a nonprofit, yeah. but we were like, we're making no money. Yeah. And it was kind of a joke internally that we were like, eh, we're uh -oh. making no money. Um, we raised a round from, from Google. It's, it's Capital G. It's their, kind of their, one of their investment arms for kind of the, the larger checks. Um, they valued us at $475 million, um, and it was this woman who is on our board still, uh, the investor, her name is Leila. Um, Leila came uh, after the investment. She flew expressly to Pittsburgh. She took me out to a bar, and Severin, it was Severin and me, we took, she took us out to a bar. She got us drunk. I mean, she really kept on, she kept on ordering us more drinks, and we just kept on drinking them. Um, at some point, while we were already drunk, she said, guys, you have to make money, uh, and you have to make money now. No, you already you raised money from the. There's no bigger fool than Google. Like this is it. This is there's. We have infinite pockets. We just invested in this. You're not gonna get another investment while making no money. Um, uh, and I guess she kind of scared us. We were we were we were like, uh oh, we we need to figure something out. So literally the next day we went back and we we're like, we have to figure out how to make money. Um, 
and uh, um, we started we started trying to really figure out. You know, before that we were we we were. It's not like we were trying zero, but our, our attempts were not super for real. We were like, yeah, maybe we'll figure it out. After that, we started trying really for real. I mean, what um, did you have a monetization department, or did you somehow change the value system within to say start well, charging for I, stuff? Well, I will tell you. Before this, we had we had a monetization department. It was a guy. And he's right there. It's Rogelio, right over there. He's still there. It was a guy who, by the way, when he came into the company, the company was allergic to make. We we didn't want to make money. He'll tell you that we didn't want to make money. He came in and he's like, everybody thinks I'm Darth Vader here or something like that, <laughs> because he's like, guys, we need to make money, and we just kind of didn't. I don't know. For some reason, this was not valued at the company. Um, we started trying to change that, um, and uh, uh, you know, a lot of it. At that time, already Rogelio had gone and tried to talk to everybody, trying to convince them. So I think that he had set up the groundwork for you know, people being like, ah, oh, maybe we do need to make money. And um, you know, we started getting a lot more serious about it. It took months for people to even agree that making money was not evil. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, people agreed that making money was not evil. Then uh, it was important for us that we would find a way to make a lot of money, but without uh, you know, we really wanted to be the free way to learn languages. This was important to us. So an easy way to make money is to start charging everybody for the app. We didn't want to do that. So we ended up coming up. It took, you know, it took years uh, of, of kind of trial and error. But we ended up coming up with this, with this method that works really well that ends up being very similar to what the dating apps do, which is that at the end of a lesson, we give you an ad. And um, we make money off of that. And if you really don't like the ads, you can pay us to turn off the ads. And we make more money off of that. Um, and so now, you know, fast forward many years, today, 7% of our monthly active users pay us. The other 93% use us for free. Uh, but that 7% give us about 75% of our revenue. Um, so they're the paying for, for that. So that was kind of the monetization thing. It was, it is, you know, Leila told us, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a company that doesn't want to make money. Um, we were well, I mean, company. it goes further than that. I mean, you said that <laughs> if you come up with some whizzy new scheme to make money and it's considered a bit too harsh, then uh, you know you think half your people are going to leave, and you you get pushback. We, so that, we, that yeah. value is that set of values is still there. That value, that, yes, it's a very mission-driven company. Um, we've learned a few things. So I mean, we are now a publicly traded company, so we've learned a few things. Um, but we we've learned, for example, that the key learning, I think, the thing that convinced everybody in the company was that making money helps us achieve our mission. And and it, for sure, I mean, now you know, before making money. We had much fewer employees. We had, you know, we couldn't work on as many things at once. After making money, we could work on many, many more things at once. So it has helped us achieve our mission. Okay, and that that was the the key the key understanding that took years to understand. Well, we're kind of reaching the time when I want to um, turn over to to others, and we you know we've done a, a fair old chunk of your existence and um, and building of, of the business. Um, but before moving over to questions from the floor. I, I actually asked you to come up with a few sort of top tips. It's a bit cliched, I know, but, but a, a few things that you, mistakes that you've made that you wouldn't make again, that you would wish the current, those here uh, attending, n not to do the same as you did or to do it faster. I mean, there was one about thinking. Take the Facebook offer. Take I'm the kidding. Facebook <laughs> offer. <laughs> or take the Google offer and buy the Facebook shares. Either way. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know, you, you talk about the, the long term, and shortcuts never pay off. That was one that, that you. Uh... Yeah, there's a number of things. I mean, I think. Well, by the way, many people have asked me what the biggest mistake we've made at Duolingo, and I think the biggest mistake was not monetizing soon enough. 
Um, we, we are we're two to three years behind. We would be two to three years ahead today uh, if we had started monetizing earlier. So I believe that's the biggest mistake we made. Because we would have had more resources. To yeah, yeah, yeah. We just lost three years. Yeah. It's basically, we were, I don't even know what we were doing those three years. We must have been doing something, but I'm not even entirely sure what we were doing. Not listening to Rogelio I mean, is what there, we were there doing. Were <laughs> this, there were discussions on we'll do this and you saying, well, we can't afford to do this. I mean, yeah, they're all for sure. For oh, okay. sure. Right. For sure. So we, we lost it. That's probably the biggest mistake. But I mean, that, you know, I don't know if many people would make that mistake. Um, you know, things, things that, that, that are useful. Um, a big principle that we have at Duolingo, and I think it's been a, 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 a big thing. Um, by the way, what, what we do at Duolingo is we have this, these things called um, operating principles. Um, we, we, have, uh, we have 10 of them. And one of them is called um, uh, take the long view. It's actually been really good for us. Um, and what that means is don't do things that are uh, you know, just good for tomorrow. Uh, think about what will happen in five years. Are you going to be happy with that decision five years from now? Um, and that really clarifies a lot. Um, and especially if you're going to, you know, if you're starting a company, you want it to be, it, it takes roughly 10 years to make a company from zero to publicly traded, if all goes well. Uh, I mean, there's maybe some, you know, uh, every now and then there's an outlier that does it faster or something, but it roughly takes 10 years to make a company from zero to publicly traded company. Um, so if, you're tr if you want to start a company that is going to be pretty big, you're going to be at this for decades. Um, so you should really think about, you know, if, it, if five years from now you're going to have to be paying it, paying for it, uh, don't do that. And, and we made a lot of mistakes like that, things, like short-term things that five years later I've had to pay off. Um, so that's, that's a big thing um, uh, for me. I think another one has been just, um, I learned this, by the way, in reCAPTCHA. Um, this is why Duolingo was very different. You can hire really smart people that are also nice. I learned this in reCAPTCHA. <laughs> you mean they do exist? They exist. Yeah. They, that was not the case in reCAPTCHA. I hired very smart people, and it was, it was not a great environment. I mean, because they were, everybody was, um, um, they were not the nicest. Um, at Duolingo, we, from the beginning, we're like, look, it's important. We have to hire people that are also nice. Um, and it's worked out really well. So it's, I, don't, you know, I don't claim that 100% of our employees are nice. nice. But, 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 um, because the culture is a nice culture, what happens is if we eventually hire somebody who's not very nice, I think they just either get rejected by the system or they turn nice. Uh, no, like it really, this happens. And, and you know, early on we had this rule. I, I was told I couldn't have this rule anymore because it's not, it's not very kosher, but um, I had a rule that was, you know, when you're trying to hire somebody, um, you have, it's because you have a hole in the organization that you're trying to fill. The rule that we had is it's better to have a hole than an asshole. Um, I was told I, I can't really say this too much inside the company. So, but in any case, um, that was, I mean, a, that was an important. I think you probably just did. <laughs> but inside the company. Inside the, uh, but that is, uh, that, that I, I now live my life through that rule. I mean, yeah. really. And we do all kinds of things. Even for, um, I mean, for more junior employees, we can't, uh, you know, we can't really check too much. But part of the interview is trying to make sure that they are going to be nice. But for some of the more senior employees, um, when we were looking for our CFO, which is a very important hire, um, we had a person that everybody really liked, and we were about to make an offer, and it turned out that the guy who drove him back to the airport, who works for us, um, but it's a contract, I mean, it's basically a person that does car service for us, told us that that guy was not very nice to him, and we did not make an offer. 
Uh, because and I and I think it was the right thing to do. Yeah. We, uh, we really want to have people that and, are. I mean, uh, and that sort of story goes around the, the, the business and yes, becomes part yes, of the and culture. People, people kind of have, law, have yeah. heard that that it is, and that, and it, that is, I, I think you know, uh, basically this person was uh, very good at treating people who were at his level nicely. Yeah. But I think people that were well, he perceived to be below his level, he was not very nice, and so um, okay. we didn't want that. Louis. Fantastic talking to you. Thank you Thank for you. being so honest and open. And uh, please. Thank you. This is Jeff Skinner again. I do hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you want to have advance notice of future talks, tell talks, uh, and all the other wonderful stuff we do within the Institute of Entrepreneurship and Private Capital at London Business School, then do go and have a look at our website, www.london.edu forward slash innovation.